Namaste. So this evening I'd like to begin with a story. I believe it was in 1992. Oh, back in 1913. <laughs> in 1992 or 91, I was invited to uh, the Women's World Conference in Beijing, China to offer a piece of work I was doing at the time called generational healing. And I was excited to say yes because the invitation came from a woman who, um, Chinese woman, who shared that the community she was in had a history of the uh, girls being unwanted and kind of given up. And the idea of about 2,500 women from all over the world converging in China and in that land at that time had tremendous appeal for as a sense of homecoming, the girls coming home. And so while I was there, there were just it was an amazing time. And I remember taking a tour and it was a tour with like a thousand people. So it was huge. And I can't remember the temple we were in, but there was this mammoth um, size golden Buddha that was uh, that we were all processioning through and watching. And it was a mesmerizing, humbling um, image of something I knew deeply but didn't know anything about. And as it turns out, the, the room emptied out, and who was left in the room was me and one other woman. And it happened to be another African-American woman with dreadlocks. We both had dreadlocks. I used to have big hair at one time. And all of a sudden, in the quiet of the room, we turned to each other, and we both had tears in our eyes because we were captivated by this image. Um, and she said to me, she says, uh, why are you crying? And I said, well, why are you crying? <laughs> and uh, we, she said, where do you live? I said, well, I live in the Bay Area. Now, only somebody from the Bay Area would say the Bay Area in China as if everybody knew what that meant <laughs> because clearly the Bay Area is unlike no other place in the world because it's the Bay Area. And she said, so do I. And I'm thinking, whoa. And then she asked me if I meditated. And I said, well, kind of. And as it turns out, this was Dr. Marlene Schoonover-Jones, who was on the board of Spirit Rock at the time. And she said to me, she said, I want you to come and join me there. I need you there. And I did. I um, met her there on a Monday. She introduced me to her teacher, Jack Cornfield. He was speaking that night. And some of you may know Jack Cornfield, but he's been my root teacher since that time. And what he's known for saying and what he said that evening 
back in 1992. He's probably said it many years prior to my showing up at Spirit Rock. But in my mind, he says it almost every time I see him, even though he's not speaking. But he often is known for saying this before he speaks. And it goes like this. It's a quote from the Buddha. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, of the awakened one, remember who you really are, the one who knows. Because the element of the truth seeker is within you, there's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because this is a part of you, it will take you on this journey of discovery. And I'll, I'll never forget how I felt then, how I feel now, to hear that calling, that sense of welcome into a practice that's basically inviting you to know for yourself what's true. The element of the truth seeker is within you. There's a part of you that already knows who you are and wants to awaken to this mystery. And because of this, it takes you on a journey of discovery. And what I think is core to this statement and to our time in the retreat right about now is that we've been cultivating this heart and, and this awake heart this aware heart. We've been kind of finding our way in this journey to our heart and the power of heart and presence. That's what this practice is really about. And what I'm so humbled by is the number of people I've sat with this week who have shared their journey. And when you think about it, it's pretty amazing that we could be sitting in this room because we all have um, some interesting journey that led us here to be sitting here, some quirky kind of thing that happened maybe in another country that brought you here and this journey of discovery, this mystery that we're unfolding. And we're on this journey together and in this precious birth and the teachings, what we're taught is that we have this capacity to wake up and be aware of awareness. We have this capacity to be aware of awareness. And that's one of the things I want to talk about tonight. So part of my practice um, over the years since 92 has brought me to uh, more and more of an understanding not only of the mystery, meaning that there's not a sense of a destination that we're getting to, but more of a sense of appreciating the ride, appreciating um, the journey itself. And the more awake, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned with the, 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 the many gradations and variations of awareness that can happen in a sit and a relationship in our lives. 
So this looking through the lens of awareness, wise awareness, with an open heart has been uh, a profound journey for me. And I'd like to share some thoughts with you on that this evening. So there's a few things I'd like to do. I'd like to, to talk about the two aspects of mind that um, speak to this experience of awareness. And I'd like to share some thoughts and maybe um, some ideas about what this sense of awareness, the quality of it is like um, through some examples of some teachers that, we've, that I've worked with and that read about. I'd also like to offer a simple practice. Tara did a beautiful offering this morning in the guided meditation that touches us right into the experience of awareness. And I'd like to add another little tool on how we can be with awareness and also some things to think about that keep us um, pointed towards some strategies to keep us aware of how we can stay in a practice with awareness. And then just talk overall about how this has the capacity to enrich our lives. And so many of you have already talked about that and shared that in different stories about just how you're touching into this sense of uh, insight and a sense of release and uh, letting go that opens us into uh, the pure nature of who we are. So awareness has a couple, has two aspects to it. There is the objects of mind, the things that arise and pass away in our minds. And then there's the knowing mind. And the objects of mind um, can be anything that we think about, feel, sensations, all of these things that come up in our mind. And the knowing mind is the aspect of mind that simply knows what's arising. So it bears witness to the objects of mind. It knows what's arising and it knows also how we're relating to what's arising. It doesn't have an opinion about it. It's neutral. It's a mirror-like quality of mind that just shows what's happening. And it happens instantaneously with the object of our awareness. So it's the awareness itself, the knowing mind, is not really concerned with the content it simply mirrors back, it mirrors back what's being known. It mirrors back the good stuff, the bad stuff, the ugly stuff. It's got a sky-like quality that is showing you what's arising, that's instantaneously touching what arises. So awareness of anger is not angry. It's aware of anger. Awareness of sadness is not sad. It's simply aware. Awareness of hunger 
is not hungry. It's simply aware. It's neutral, still, receptive, welcoming, non-judgmental. It's a silent partner in the aliveness of our lives. It's an ocean of awareness that simply knows what's arising and passes away and passing away and it also knows everything in between what arises and passes away. It's always present here and now. It just simply knows what's happening. So you can almost think about it as a figure kind of ground. Tara talked a little bit about this sky-like quality. Sometimes I have the image of a vast open sky and you know the airplanes that fly in the sky and draw those lines in the sky, a trail of white lines and after a while it fades away. The object appears and it fades away into the sky, the open sky of awareness got that quality to it. So we could not experience an object of mind without being aware of it. So awareness allows objects to be known in the grossest form as well as in a more subtle form. So here's some of the ways some teachers have talked about it. The Mahayana doctrine describes Buddha nature in this way. It's, it's, it's said that our very nature is an unborn and undying awareness. Our very nature, an unborn and undying awareness. I read something by Bodhidharma called the Snagatooth Barbarian, and it reads... Trying to find enlightenment is like trying to grab space. Space has a name but no form. It's not something you can pick up or put down, and you certainly can't grab it. So that's kind of this quality of awareness. It's not something that you can go get and hold on to. It's a quality... Uh, of spacious, formless, vastness, sky-like quality, ocean-like quality. Bhante Gunanatara, who's a Theravadan monk that's in North Carolina, describes awareness this way. He says, awareness happens just before you start thinking. A flashing split second just before you focus your eyes and your mind on the thing. Just before you objectify it, clamp down on it mentally and segregate it from the rest of existence. Just before your mind says, oh, it's a dog. That few seconds, just before you conceptualize it as a thing, 
is mindfulness. This soft, unfocused awareness contains a very deep knowing that is lost as soon as you focus your mind and objectify the object into a dog. Once the mind perceives, mindfulness is quickly passed over. And mindfulness meditation teaches us to prolong the moments of awareness, those moments of awareness where we can know awareness itself. Winnie the Pooh says it this way. Well, said Pooh, what I like best, and then he had to stop and think, because eating honey was a very good thing to do. There was a moment, though, just before you began to eat it, which was better than when you were. (laughs) But he didn't know what it was called. And that's that quality. Just before you eat the honey, the object, there's moments before that that we can begin to know when we open our awareness and see a more panoramic aspect of mind. And Wallace Stevens, who wrote a book called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, says it this way. I don't know which to prefer the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendo, the blackbird whistling or just after. So you get this sense of there's something else that we can be attending to instead of the ways we fixate an object itself and then it gets shrink-wrapped, airtight, zip-locked, and it becomes all-encompassing, our objects of mind. But the awareness of mind often can be left out of our awareness. Rumi says it this way. He says, live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. Live in the nowhere, the vast, open, pure nature of our awareness, even though you have an address here, this physical body, this object. So objects of mind and the knowing mind are distinct experiences, and both are to be known, both are to be known through our practice. But we tend to fixate on the object itself. And not only do we fixate on the object itself, but sometimes we can be aware, but the awareness is not wise. Like I can be quite aware that I don't like you. Or I can be aware that I eat too much. But it's another thing when you're aware that that's what's happening, when you're aware of wanting, when you're aware of um, ill will. It's a shift in how we hold and know experience. 
one of the questions I ask myself in this practice at times, and I've also asked other teachers, is do you really need, um, is the knowing mind dependent on an object? And the answer I get back is yes, because there's always an object, even if it's emptiness and awareness itself. There's always uh, an experience that we're having. So we can be thinking in the future or thinking in the past, but to notice that we are thinking is what it is we're wanting to cultivate. To notice that we are thinking and to know the experience of that. So this awareness of awareness aspect of mind is cultivated through our mindfulness practice. And I'd like to talk about some of the things that get in the way of us knowing that more directly. It has to do with our view, the views that we carry habitually from our conditioning. I'd like to talk about some of the things we tend to forget and some of the things, three things we tend to forget and three things we might want to remember. One thing that we tend to forget is that life is not personal. We move through our life thinking that the things that happen in life are, are personal, are unique to ourselves. And we're conditioned to kind of focus on ourselves in this way that we um, have solidified a self through our conditioning and hold tightly to it. It's become a key uh, object, if you will, of our awareness, ourselves. And we've also been conditioned through the things that happen in our life, we've been conditioned towards extremes, extremes, extreme experiences, intense experiences, or the other extreme of maybe numb experience, or things that we don't tend to pay that much attention to. But the things that are in the middle are a little more uh, unfamiliar to us. So we tend to concoct an I or a self. And then we cling to it. We over-identify with it. And then that's reinforced through habit. And it ripens into more habit. And then it hardens. And then our view is narrowed and kind of locked into a deep groove. We all do this. And we suffer in the grip of that, in that sense of small self, tight self. It's a process that we refer to as papancha, oftentimes where, you know, this self gets morphed and morphed and morphed and reinforced through the, um, the, the concern that we might have and then the second arrow of adding the stories to it. And then before we know it, we're just kind of reinforcing a cycle of suffering. And it's a selfing cycle. 
I kind of liken it to, you know, you go to the amusement park and there's the cotton candy stand and the long white stick that's there and they stick it in this machine and it goes around and all the pink stuff gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then they hand you this great big pink sticky thing. And our sense of self is like that. It's kind of like this cotton candy that gets all over everything and makes a mess. And, you know, we've got to clean our face. And that's how we kind of continue the weaving of that is an act of selfing that keeps us in a solid sense of narrow focus. So what we forget is, is that we take things personally. We do this on the cushion and, and we do it off the cushion as well where, you know, we, we think we know something and we're locked into our view until the bubble burst. I was in Charlottesville. I did some training there and, and uh, a yogi t- drove me to the airport and I was just so thrilled because we got to this intersection and um, I looked up and the name of the street was like, oh my goodness, you have a street here named after Barack Obama, Barack Avenue, that's amazing here in Charlottesville. This is, oh my gosh. And she was quiet for a minute and then she says, you know, we call that barracks in these parts. But I was so sure that (laughs) I was in this. I mean, you should have seen me. My chest got all big and, you know, all of a sudden my hair grew out in a big afro. (laughs) Barack Avenue. Uh, We call that barracks in these parts. We can think we know and get ourselves in all kind of trouble. I was was on a flight recently and... um, I uh, was coming through, you know how you come in to get on the plane and the stewardess meets you right there in the entry of the plane. And So there was a backup and I'm standing there and she says, oh, what's your wristband say? I, I wear these wristbands and it's uh, a retreat I give called Mindful of Race. Uh, so it says Mindful of Race, not there yet. So she says, oh, what's, what's your wristband? And she looked at it and she says, oh, yes. I ran a 10K for cancer, (laughs) you know. She connected the wristband and race with the ball head and assumed I had been going through treatment, so she wanted me to know she was there for me, and it's like, sometimes you just have to just let let things like that go. (laughs) But she knew, I mean, you know. Felt good. We we need to put ourselves in check about what we think we know. It's our conditioning, and you know, it's that kind of focus we have of this um, personal view. And sometimes we forget that there is just so much more to see. So we forget that life is not personal. And what we need to remember is that nothing. The Buddha says that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I need. Or mine. The more clinging to I, me, or mine, the more selfing, and the more selfing, the more suffering. So that's what we forget, and that's one thing we forget, and 
what we need to remember. A second thing we forget is that life is not perfect. You know, we're really blown away when things don't go just quite the way we want it to go in our lives, on the cushion. It's like, well, wait a minute, this retreat, I was great at the last one. I don't know what happened at this one. I was expecting something to grow on this, and I think I've taken a major, you know, we expect things to be perfect. We don't want our lives to be messy, and they are. I have yet to meet someone here who hasn't been dealing with the mess of life and challenged with the stickiness. We don't want to hurt. We don't want to suffer. Yet dukkha is to be remembered as a real, as a reality of our lives. Dukkha feeds on unawareness. We feed dukkha through unawareness of our greed, aversion, and delusion. And it can be sobering when we start to kind of thaw ourselves out from the grip of, of the um, imperfections in the world. I've been reading this book by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I don't know if some of you may know it. It's called Between the World and Me. He's from Baltimore, Maryland, a journalist. And this book is written to his 14-year-old African-American son. And he's trying to help him make sense out of his life of fear and also living in a world that even morphs the fear and the dangers in this life for uh, young boys his age walking around. And um, so he writes in this book a time where he was stretching out of a sense of... Um, of um, of uh, kind of fixation. He, this is the first time he had ever left Baltimore. He took a trip to Paris, and this was a major risk factor to allow himself to be outside of the shell of Baltimore and to challenge his entrenched fear of um, belonging in the world, and he wanted his son to understand the story. So this is him in Paris. He writes, A few weeks into our stay, I made a friend who wanted to improve his English as much as I wanted to improve my French. We met one day out in the crowd in front of Notre Dame. We walked to the Latin Quarter. We walked to a wine shop. Outside the wine shop, there were seating. There was seating. We sat and drank a bottle of red. We were served heaping piles of meat, bread, and cheese. Was this dinner? Did people do this? I had not even known how to imagine it. And more, was this all some elaborate ritual to get an angle on me? My friend paid. I thanked him. But when we left, I made sure he walked out first. He wanted to show me one of those old buildings that seemed to be around every corner in the city. And the entire time he was leading, I was sure he was going to make a quick turn into an alley 
where some dudes would be waiting to, to strip me of what exactly? But my new friend simply showed me the building, shook my hand, and walked off into the wide open night. And watching him walk away, I felt that I had missed part of the experience because my eyes, because, because my eyes, because my eyes were made in Baltimore, because my eyes were blindfolded by fear. So even when we are in situations where life is perfect, at least the, those moments where it's really, really good, there can be a question um, and a hesitancy because of our conditioning that can rob us of the experience, the full awareness of what's offered. And of course, there's good reasons for that. And it's not the full story. It's not the full experience. So we're all seeing through our eyes of conditioning, and it shapes our view. And there is suffering. The Buddha teaches that there is suffering. There's birth, aging, illness, death. There's disappointments. And then there's the effort of just keeping this body and mind together. Life is unpredictable, it's unreliable, it's uncontrollable, and oftentimes it's unfair. And here we sit. I love Donna Fouts' poem where she says, there is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness veils your vision with despair, patience becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your knowing way of being, the whole world is revealed to you in new eyes. So we forget that life is not perfect, and what we need to remember is that life is unpredictable, uncontrollable, unreliable. And the third thing that we forget is that life is impermanent. We want things to, to stay, to stay the same. We want, we want things to be lovely all the time. One of my dorm of teacher friends gave me these glasses. I don't know if you've seen these kind of glasses. They're kind of 3D glasses and <laughs> when you put them on, this particular version, you know, every place where there's a light turns into hearts, multiple hearts. 
is just glorious. I never want to take them off, you know. I don't want to take these glasses off. All of you look so beautiful, all of the lights. It's just so great, you know. So um, some of us kind of move through the world wanting it to be the, the stars and, and the little hearts all the time, and it's not. What we forget is that life is not permanent. Flowers make no promises. Romance doesn't last forever. People we love die. And the cute puppy poops. I mean, it's just how it is. So change is is all there is. So these are just some of the ways we're conditioned. There's conditioning that shapes our life, things that have touched our life, shape our lives. And our practice also is conditioning. It's, a, it's a, another way of holding our experience, our experiences in a wholesome way. So it's this notion of awareness. Sometimes I find in practice that people want to come to practice because they want to, you know, feel good and they want to be peaceful and they want it to stay that way. But suffering is to be known. Suffering is to be known by awareness, known intimately. Can't fast forward over it. If we could, we, we, would, we would have done that by now. We're, we're still going to have difficulty with our children and our parents and, you know, uh, struggles with illness and aging. These, these things are still going to happen. So we're looking at a larger field to hold and be and bear witness to our experiences in life. So remembering that life is not personal, it's not perfect, and it's not permanent can be helpful for us as a view when we're looking at our practice. Because when we remember, we can start to release and let go a little bit. We can't do it if it's just a concept. You know, we, 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 this applies mostly when we can get ourselves still and know directly how this is working. So this is the foundation, uh, foundational awareness, these three characteristics of anita, nacha, and dukkha, of impermanence, of uh, dissatisfactoriness, and non-self that supports us as we look at awareness, at looking at awareness from the lens of wisdom not just from the, from the lens of awareness itself. So when we're gripped in our practice because we see something and we've locked in and locked down with it, I sometimes describe that as a zoomed in, we're zoomed in to an experience. And our relationship to awareness invites us to zoom the lens out so we can see more than 
the object, you know, just the fixated object that we're in. And objects that lock us in that way can actually point us towards and invite us to explore awareness, which is fundamentally what the practice was this morning. We can use any object of awareness to point to awareness. So I'd like for us to just try a practice on with this and see what we can glean for ourselves. I ask you to just take a seat. and You're already in a seat, but take a position that's kind of comfortable with you. And you can close your eyes if you like, turning your attention inward. And take three conscious breaths, feeling the breath, being intimate with the breath here. And begin to just notice, notice, if you will, the activity of mind that's occurring right, right here, right now. Noticing the objects of mind that arise. And they may be arising quickly. You don't have to catch all of them, but notice this activity of mind. And you can begin to note or name in your mind what's happening. It could be thinking or listening, fear, questioning. Confusion, whatever is there. Just name it as if to put a frame around it for a second or two. And just do that with whatever arises. Now shifting to the knowing aspect of mind. And here I'd like you to add, thinking is known. Aversion is known. Pieces like this. Confusion is known. 
adding the words is known or like this. And then pausing to open your awareness to noticing the experience that's being known. And just continue with that. Judging is known. Joy is like this. And allowing your full body to know what's happening. Recognizing, allowing, relaxing, abiding, just in the knowing, in the awareness. Awareness is like this. So you can open your eyes. In this practice I've found personally invites the objects of mind that are uh, has my attention to open to an experience of the object throughout the body. So to say awareness is known is to then pause and allow the knowing to be known throughout the body. And whenever we shift away from just the thought to the breath or to stillness or to silence, we experience deeper and deeper levels of awareness of this pure nature of who we are. And a shift towards awareness is a shift away from the clinging and clutching that can happen sometimes when we're fixated on the object. Krishnamurti says, when the mind is still tranquil, not seeking any answers or solutions, neither resisting or avoiding, it is only then that the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. 
So a couple of more strategies before we close that can point us more towards awareness. <coughs> One that I've found very useful is entering through the territory of mind that tends to be neutral, that part of the mind. I think Tara said it earlier, when, you, when you're on your way somewhere, these places of neutral are um, things we don't tend to notice or focus in on. Aspects of experience that are kind of fuzzy and um, we don't tend to have a lot of passion for staying there or looking at what's happening. So sometimes we call these, these experiences boredom or indifference or blah, why am I doing this? And it's right in those kind of places that, that we could bring a bit more curiosity to experience. It's those places that tend to be in between the extreme of object fixation. A quality of this was uh, a saying I heard, she is so familiar to me I hardly know her. So it's that kind of notion that we can zero in on what we think is familiar so we don't need to go there. Could be rich territory for waking up. Another strategy could be um, the body as one big ear. That deep listening is also another gateway to experiencing awareness. John O'Donohue said, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So we can be surprised by what unfolds if we allow the body to be what informs us, awareness running throughout the body, knowing awareness is full-bodied, is useful. And the, the last area is compassionate self-reflection, which is what we've been talking a lot about this week with the nurturing quality of, of especially the nurturing quality of rain can be very supportive in uh, allowing us to soften enough so that we can know, uh, we can have a sense of deep knowing of, of what's possible on the inside of, because of the subtle experiences we're having with release to then open a little more to a pure nature of who we are. So the invitation is to be intimately, to be intimate with the knowing mind, to open to this silent partner that is always present and available. And our practice supports us in doing that. This practice leads to wisdom, and then it uses wisdom to purify awareness. So that's a big part of what we're doing.
So let's sit together for a couple of minutes. Live in the nowhere that you come from, even though you have an address here. Thank you for your kindness your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.